Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. That email address is also in the notes section of the video here on YouTube, so you can refer to that anytime if you want to send me a question. You send me questions, I put them in my question queue, and I just sort of go through and select uh, random or semi-random ones uh, from week to week. Okay, uh, a couple informational points. Uh, we put a podcast up this week. I interviewed a man named um, Marco Visconti, amazing guy, He's still practicing. He's rather a member of and practicing, uh, or uh, sorry, not actual member, former member, kind of member, anyway, believer in Thelema and the OTO, okay, the Ordo Templi Orientis, the Temple of the East. This is a group that L. Ron Hubbard was associated with before he became uh, the king of Dianetics and Scientology. And we go into detail about what Thelema and the OTO and its sex magic practices are all about. And then we really get into it. And I really liked this podcast. This is a topic between the one that I did a couple weeks ago on Madame Blavatsky with Joe Zimhart, who filled us in on some amazing history. And then this one on the OTO sort of picking up where we left off, really, with Joe, we get into L. Ron Hubbard and the OTO and Aleister Crowley and Jack Parsons and that whole story. So one, these are, it's almost a two-part couple of podcasts. And um, anyway, I hope you guys will check those out because if you want to know what Scientology is really all about, I mean, like I now actually get it. When I read, you know, I've read over the years how Scientology is a cult and how Scientology comes from occult practices and how it's 100% from, you know, Blavatsky, Crowley, you know, th uh, theosophy. I, I sort of nibbled at the, around the edges of this or read the things that were out there like Russell Miller's biography of Hubbard, which goes into quite a bit of detail about all this, and that's, that's all we had, or that's all I sort of had about it, but I never connected all the dots in, historically. And when you see the bigger picture, which once you start getting interested in, you know, cults in general, you want to see the bigger picture of where are all these groups coming from and why, and what's the basis of these belief systems and ideas that these guys dream up. Well, it actually goes back to very specific ideas. Anyway, it's I just find this stuff fascinating, and I hope you do too. So you can check those out. The other thing I've been sort of polling about this week is the best day and time for me to do a call-in show. And that's something I want to do in addition to the two shows a week that I'm, that I'm stably doing right now, which is the podcast on Saturdays and this Q&A show on Sundays. What I'm thinking about doing, based on survey results so far and the polling that I've seen, is um, I think we're going to try it on uh, Wednesday nights to start and see what kind of audience, what kind of reception there is to this. Maybe that's a bad idea and I should go right to Saturdays. I don't, I'm, I'm not 100% sure yet, which is why maybe I'm sort of polling again here to say, well, I could do it Wednesday nights or I could do it Saturdays in the afternoon. I don't want to do it Sundays. There's already too many call-in shows with people I really like who I don't, you know, I don't want to try to get into that. So I want to do it on a different day. So I'm thinking Saturdays. 
So I was thinking of maybe easing it in by starting it on Wednesdays and then maybe moving it to Saturdays, or should I just go straight for Saturdays and move the podcast to Wednesdays? Anyway, just for those of you who care, <laughs> give me your you know give me your feedback in the comments. All right. So all that being said, I hope that you guys are staying safe and following the rules and keeping yourselves and your family and your friends and everybody else safe by staying the hell away from them. And, um, you know, wearing masks when you go out and just following the common sense guidelines that we're being given. I know this is rough. And I also know that right now is when we're really hitting up against the roughest time you've experienced so far, for many of you at least, as far as being cooped up, stuck inside, you know, you're never getting out, you're not seeing the sun for some of you, I guess, you know, or you're not getting outside enough, or you're feeling like, I got to get to a restaurant, or I want to go to a sporting event, or I want to go to a movie or something, you know. Look, it's not like I don't get it, but I, let me just share with you that, you know, you're gonna, you can live through this. You can, you can, because if I could live through three years of the RPF where a month could go by where I didn't really see outside ever, <laughs> you know, I'm in a basement, I'm, I'm running, you know, all over the place in a building, but I'm cooped up in, you know, and sequestered away from the rest of the crew. I'm not even able to talk to the people that I love. So... If I could do that and I am nothing special, then I just want to encourage you guys to, you know, stiffen the resolve and, and realize that what we're doing is the right thing to do. And it's tough and it's hard, but it is the right thing to do. So let's just do it. So anyway, I would feel irresponsible if I didn't make some comment like that. So, okay, now let's get to your questions. Paul Czar. According to the Church of Scientology, their in-house printing facility in Los Angeles Bridge Publications, can churn out 280,000 books per week while their dissemination plant can do 130,000 publications per day to 190 nations. The UN says there are 195 countries in the world, so what five are spared? But where does all this stuff go? Are the printing presses kept idle or does it go to some massive pulping plant up at the secret gold base? Also, a sneaky quickie, group processing. Have you got a floor? Repeat 16 times. Have you got a finger? Repeat 20 times. What nonsense is all that? All right, you know, the thing about David Miscavige is he loves bragging about physical things. Um, square footage, how many chairs are in course rooms, how many, you know, I don't know, windows are on the, on the doors. I mean, he'll brag about anything when it comes to physical stuff because he hates people. So when they promote Bridge Publications or New Era Publications in Europe, which is the sister organization, these printing facilities, they talk about um, how many pieces of stuff that can be produced if everything was running at maximum capacity with maximum efficiency. I've worked at Bridge Publications, and I know that you can only maintain that sort of stuff for so long, and there's no necessity to do so. They have stocks that are kept at minimum levels. I think this is a fairly industry standard thing that you have set levels for your inventory. Scientology does the same and they have a, a huge section of their warehouse is just shelves and shelves and racks and racks of, you know, CDs and the books that they produce and the pamphlets and all the stuff that they produce. 
um, it, just boxes and boxes and crates and crates of it are all there on the shelves waiting to be ordered. And it's all sort of print on demand. So we can, you know, when I work there, we could print a hundred books at a, in a run, or we could print a thousand books or 10,000 books. I mean, it was really just a matter of, you know, changing the, the, the volume of the order. The motions we all went through were exactly the same. So the machine is there that can produce an impressive amount of books and CDs, or, you know, with lectures on them. Um, it truly is an impressive facility by any metric. I mean, you know, industry professionals went in there and helped them set it up and, and, they, and they worked out what it would, you know, what they were doing so that they could do it right because Miscavige had very high standards of what he wanted these basic books and lecture series to look like. And he got those standards met, you know, good for him. Um, it took slave-like conditions to make it happen, and the people who work there toil under slave-like conditions, I know, because I work there. So it wasn't fun, you know. It was, on, it was standing on concrete all day, uh, sometimes all day and all night. Um, you know, there weren't, there weren't even rubber pads. I mean, it was really just an inhumane place to work. Nobody cared about the people. You know, I mean, there was, it, anyway, it was just, you know, I mean, there, were, there was lip service given to caring about people. They were caring about people by, by abusing them with L. Ron Hubbard's methods, right? Because it was weird, because Bridge was like the, one, the, the, the place I went where they really tried to do all of Hubbard's advice exactly as he said it. They really did try to be as standard with policy and that kind of thing as they could be. And they were fairly good-natured about it for the most part. Even when things got rough, it was just kind of everybody got real quiet and hunkered down and just did the work. There wasn't too much, you know, yelling and screaming going on there. But it was still slave-like conditions in a slave-like environment. I mean, I don't know what else to say, you know. So, so that's what they're capable of producing, but that doesn't mean that that's what they are producing. There were many, many, many nights where there was hardly anything being produced at all. Um, you know, real easy-peasy workloads, because uh, there just isn't that much demand for L. Ron Hubbard's materials, <laughs> is the truth. All right, so that's that. And then as far as the group processing quickie question, uh, you know, what's the deal with it? Well, um, yeah. <laughs> The idea, the theory of group processing, like other kinds of objective auditing in Scientology, objective meaning it deals with the environment around you, is it's supposed to get your attention out of your head and into the environment. And if you imagine that you have attention units, this is a term in Scientology, attention units, if you only have so many units of attention to give, you imagine them as this little swarm of, you know, oh, look out there, and ooh, look in here, and ooh, look out there. And I mean, you know, it's, uh, Hubbard didn't really describe it that way, but that's kind of my, how I imagined it. But he said you have this quantity of attention units, how much attention you can give to things. And he says that a lot of the attention of people, because of all of the accumulated stress and trauma of your past, is stuck inside. It's inward facing. People are very introverted as, as beings. And they're not outward facing. They're not external facing. They're not creating things out in the world or even paying a whole lot of attention to what's going on in the world because they're walking around in this semi-hypnotized state. And Scientology is supposed to be the solution or antidote for that. It's supposed to wake them up. 
Uh, so group processing is a way of addressing this with a number of people at any one time. You can get everybody in the room, everybody's on the same page, and you go, great, look at that wall, and everybody does it. And then you look at that wall, and everybody does it, right? And then you look at the ceiling, and everybody goes, oh, okay. And if you got everybody on the same sort of wavelength or page or whatever, that sort of group esprit de corps that you want to create, you know, um, then it can be kind of this, like, amazing thing. But has that ever happened there? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never felt it there when I did group processing, and I did a lot of group processing. Um, you know, the sort of the fervor component isn't really there. Some people try to get into it that way, but other people are just kind of like, oh, God, I can't stand this. I mean, I knew a lot of Sea Org members who I sat in a lot of group processing sessions with who just thought it was just the most boring, awful, horrible thing to experience. And I was one of those people, too. We would just sit there and kind of semi-eye roll at each other, you know, it's kind of, oh my god, is this still going, you know, after 40 minutes of this, you're just like, ah, oh, get me out of this room. But you can't just stand up and walk out, so you're stuck there, you know. So group processing is just torturous, awful, but, I, but the theory of what it's supposed to do is what I just explained to you, and that's why Scientologists put up with it and try to get something out of it. Nick C., the Sea Org, if I understand correctly, has a system of ranks modeled after the U.S. Navy. In the real-world armed forces, higher rank usually carries certain privileges. For example, commissioned officers may have a separate dining room with better food. On ships, officers may be given private or semi-private cabins, while the rank and file bunks together. In the olden days, officer uniforms were made of better materials than those of common soldiers or sailors. Generals and admirals can have adjutants, essentially uniformed attendants. What privileges, if any, does higher rank carry in the Sea Org? Okay, well, not a lot, but there is some. Um, from my experience in PAC and the, at the Big Blue Base, um, which is where I was stationed for 17 years or posted, that's where I worked, um, there were separate tables eventually set up. Um, this wasn't the way it was when I first got there, but they did a, um, a pretty massive renovation of the main mess, uh, eating area. They, you know, kind of put linoleum floor down and had, had nice wooden tables made and, or nicer round wooden tables with, you know, on stands that you could easily set up and break down. And we did a lot of those setting up and breaking down uh, when I was on the RPF. I got to learn how to carry those tables by myself. But when they were first in the renovation, it seemed kind of cool. So we get this nice uh, dining area with a nicer, you know, facility and stuff. And the officers then had their own section that they could sit in. And there, um, but then they actually set up a, an officer's mess. And that was where the commanding officers and their, maybe their spouses and their crew would sit. Uh, there was a CMO mess, um, kind of its own thing, but that was also where the captains would go. So there was like that, that became like the executive dining room. I think originally it was a CMO only, and then it became like oh, the base executives were over there. And then RTC has its own dining room, completely separate from everybody else. I think Incom, the computer guys, uh, which is also a high-level sub-organization in the church. I think they also ate in the RTC dining room because I think um, 
theoretically, INCOM, the computer subgroup, and RTC are sort of parallel organizations, but of course, practically, that doesn't really work out that way. Anyway, separate mess. Okay, uh, that's great. There was no change in prices and the um, canteen, you know, the crew canteen. There wasn't any change or difference in the quality or content of the meals for the officers, for the executives and the crew. They got the same food, but the executives would get it in a much nicer setting and might get, you know, you know accoutrements like more salt or seasoning and stuff like that might be provided for them. Better desserts or the fact that they would get dessert that they would, you know, have a quantity where everybody wasn't like, like they would do in the main mess, right? It was became like sort of Lord of the Flies when the cake came out, if we ever had anything like that, which was not often. Uh, ice cream, that's right. It was ice cream on, um, on Thursdays or Friday nights or something. So, uh, yeah, so things got a little rough and tumble over in the main mess where they wouldn't get that way for the executives. Um... Otherwise, it was really just a matter of, of rank was something in the Sea Org that was used as an additional bludgeon point. It was an additional way to make you guilty for not having done enough or not doing enough or not dealing with your juniors in an appropriate manner to get them to get their stats up. And what kind of officer are you anyway, right? Like, what is this? And it would be featured as a, as a, as a criticism in reports that would be written about you. You know, he's a, you know, it wouldn't even have to be an officer. You could be a petty officer and have this kind of crap run on you too. Supposedly a chief petty officer, but he can't even get his junior to comply with the simplest of orders. You know, this kind of thing would be even put in writing against you. So... It was, um, you know, I want to say a two-edged sword, but I really feel it's more like there's a great big blade on this side, which is the, the, the con of it, and then there's a little, little tiny, you know, sort of, sort of blade on the other side. It's kind of like, well, I get to cut some grapes with it, you know, like it's not really like that great of a wonderful thing to have increased rank in the Sea Org. It doesn't get you more pay either. Um, it's really just sort of a status thing, and that really only applies on Sea Org Day, where everybody gets into their uniform, where you can see quite clearly what their rank is. I mean, they have some rank stuff now that they're using these little pins, neck pins or lapel pins, but they're not really the same as when you're wearing the full Class A with the braid and the gold and the, you know, I what do they call it? The 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 egg salad or whatever. All the you know all the stuff on the on the hat and all that. So that's where the that's where the pomp and circumstance of the Sea Org exists is kind of one day out of the year for Sea Org Day, and that's where the officers really kind of shine. Uh, otherwise, it's it's really no big deal. Michael Blau, hi Chris. I've got a subject that might make an interesting clip: the life of a student in the academy. It's a subject that seems to have been forgotten. At least, I don't remember ever hearing you mention it. I think your non-Scientologist subscribers would be interested in your discussion of the subject. The day-to-day -day life of a student and the craziness of studying with management by statistics. Keeping track of definitions, not just words, cleared, and how many self-originated demos you do. Five points each, I believe. 
Okay, Michael, well, I did do, uh, I think about a year or so ago, a fairly extensive kind of talk slash rant on my podcast about the character and nature of training in Scientology. And I went into a lot of detail about a lot of different aspects of it. Um, but I think you're right that I don't know, I, I can't recall, because it was about a three-hour podcast, two or two to three hours. I don't recall, I think I mentioned something about the student point system, but let me tell you guys a little bit more about this. And I'll link to that big, longer podcast in the description section below if you're curious or haven't seen that. Um, in Scientology, not only do you do auditing where you get kind of the one-on-one -on -one counseling and you do classes or courses, when you do the courses, you don't just show up, open up your book, and start reading. That, <laughs> there's, a, there's a statistic system that students are run on, and the statistic system is called student points. Every action you take as a student has a point value connected with it. The more I think about this, the more I think I did talk about this in the podcast. But anyway, let me, just in case I didn't and I'm remembering this wrong, um, the point system is an arbitrary valuation of every action you can do as a student. If you read a page, that's 10 points. If you read the page of a book, it's 5 points because that's a smaller amount compared to a book page, like, a, like an issue page. So, um, so 10 points for an issue five points for a book page. Every single page, every time you turn the page, you, you do a little hash mark on a scrap piece of paper or something because you know you get indoctrinated into the system where there's actually an issue posted on the notice board and there are graphs for every single student, a piece of graph paper with the dates along the bottom of each day that you study and you know the, the amount of student points that you made for that period. Actually, there are two numbers that are kept uh, it's the total student points are kept for the day, and then the average student points per hour, because if you studied for eight hours, you're clearly going to have a lot of student points, whereas if you study for two hours, you're not, so it'll crash, and it'll look like you didn't produce as much from one day to the next, but if you, the average is actually going up, then you actually are an upstat student because you're doing more per hour than you were the day before. These are how these points are sort of watched or monitored. And the students are, keep track of not just pages read, but actual number of definitions that are cleared when you look up a word. You don't just count the word. The word could have 10 definitions, and you have to go through every one of those definitions. Each one is three points. So you, again, are keeping hashtags of, uh, or, you know, not hashtags, sorry, the little hash marks of, um, how many definitions you're clearing, how many little demonstrations you do with the little demo kits, how many clay demonstrations you do, because those are worth more. The little demos, I think, were worth five points or seven points. Clay demos are worth 50 points per section or part. So, you know, you could get big points uh, by doing, you know, if you spent all day on the clay table, you could get yourself a lot of student points fairly easily. Also, when you do drills, there's lots and lots of points for that. So much so that in Scientology history, it was true many, many times, especially this was a big thing in the 70s, where you could do those TRs, the, the communications drills. You could just be, just be assigned to do them because you were making like 150 points an hour 
plus like three, four, five hundred points bonus for completing each TR. So the supervisors would get a little TR hungry, right? Because they'd want to get more student points because the supervisor is adding up everybody's student points and that's his statistic, one of his key ones. He's got two, student points and student completions. Every major course gets two points, every minor course gets one point. So the emphasis is on major course completions, lots of student points, but the supervisors used to just pull people off of their courses entirely and make them do an hour or two of TRs just because they wanted the student points to go up. It was straight up stat push. No other reason for these guys to be doing that. And supervisors would do all kinds of crazy things over the years. And I was a supervisor for many years. <laughs> and I did a lot of crazy, stupid stuff trying to finagle how to get more student points. It was all about the points and all about the completions. And um, for example, you know, we had the, the, the week would end on Thursdays at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That was the end of the week. So you had it from Thursday to 2 o'clock to Thursday to 2 o'clock. That was your statistical period. And uh, so Wednesday night was crunch time. It was the time before Thursday morning. And many, many, many sleepless Wednesday nights, staying up sometimes all night long, getting a student through a course because they were in there pitching to win the birthday game and I was revving them up and I had to do a whole sales job on them to get them to come in and do that so that we could get our statistics for Thursday at 2. No other reason than that, just a dot on a wall. That was how important that was, that I lose a night's sleep, this poor schlep lose a night's sleep. He paid for the course, and I'm, a, I'm you know, keeping him up all night so he can learn, <laughs> right? And I can get my student points, and I can get my completion statistics. So this is kind of the culture of Scientology. Being even a public Scientologist, you just never, you can't get away from all the statistics. It's everywhere. It infests everything, infects everything. So uh, anyway, that's a little rundown on that. Dana Cheryl, I've been watching your podcast since the beginning when you were filming in front of your apartment complex. Your podcast has changed a lot from all Scientology to a diverse lineup with different topics, interviews, current events, psychology and cult experts, etc. Can you share how you feel your growth as a person has influenced the direction of your podcasting? Thanks for asking, and I'll try to keep this real short because I talk about myself and my recovery kind of all the time, and I don't know, maybe I feel like I talk about it too much, but you guys keep asking, so, <laughs> okay. Um, my podcast, my channel have, has definitely reflected my changing attitudes and, and ideas about Scientology, about belief in general, belief systems, how we think, how we operate. Um, why we think the way we do, critical thinking, what it's all about, what it's important about it and what isn't, um, what should we stress about it. You know, these, this has all changed and evolved over the years. And I've said from the beginning, I've, I'm, I've been good to say, look, the channel is not about my static stuck positions where I'm just going to sit on a uh, bar stool or, uh, or stand on a soapbox and tell you everything that you should think about things. I'm just here to inform and maybe agitate a little bit, but mainly try to educate through example uh, and through 
maybe sometimes going down rabbit holes and pursuing silly ideas only to come through the other side and go, okay, well, that was a little silly. You know, let's carry on. And I think as the years have gone on, I've become more comfortable with that process. And I don't talk about it as much, at least I hope I don't talk about it as much as I used to. Um, and I used to talk, you know, just a couple years into my, into having a channel, I used to talk about, you know, I really want to move away from Scientology at some point. And I think over the years I have successfully done that to a degree by taking on other cult experiences or other areas like propaganda and unfortunately politics where manipulation and thought reform and totalism rear their ugly heads because that's, you know, you, how can I not talk about politics? And of course, when that comes up, opinions come out and, you know, people get a little pissed. Well, you know, I, I don't know how to talk about it otherwise. But anyway, um, I think my willingness and openness about that stuff has changed over the years. I have felt like I am becoming a more honest, open person. And I know a lot of people wouldn't particularly look at me six, seven years ago, well, he's not being open and honest. I mean, how comfortable I am in my own skin about it. There we go. That's, that's, the, that's the phrase I've been looking for this whole time. So there you go. That's how I have changed, and I think that's how my channel has evolved. And you guys have been along for the ride, some of you the whole time. And, and of course, I've had long-term supporters on Patreon and new supporters on Patreon even this last week. Thanks, guys, who signed up. I should do some more, you know, shout-outs. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, it's been, it's been great for that to happen and for, um, and for the direction to wander a little bit and for me to wonder out loud, should I try this, should I try that, well, what about this, and having a little bit of freedom of movement to move beyond the little niche that is Scientology. Over time, my, my, the importance of Scientology in my life has become very negligible. Very, it, it very much does not, you know, it, it's not renting space in my head anymore. Um, other broader topics are that, I, that I've connected with all of this as I just went over. So, um, so anyway, so that's how that's kind of reflected my own change is the change in the channel. And I'm just glad you guys have stick, stuck along for the ride and continue to remain interested in the things that I'm having to say about this stuff and, and the guests that I put in front of you and, and talk to them about that stuff, you know. So, um, God, I look at some of my original interviews, by the way. Oh, they were horrible. Oh. I, it's it's funny how that also is a learning process, just learning how to talk to and interview people, you know, and I'm not saying I'm great at it now, but, oh, first interviews I did, oh, man, wow, <laughs> enough said. Adria Vizi Holub, I just listened to part two of the video, Recovery from Scientology and Other Authoritarian Cults, on John Atak's channel. My question is not on the main topic, but on a rabbit trail you both went on. Given the current situation in U.S. politics, which is ridiculous, but it is what it is, what types of practical action could average non-wealthy people, and maybe even disabled people, engage in to affect positive change in the systems that govern the United States? How can we move the laws and systems that affect us toward kindness, science, education, etc.? 
It seems impossible given voter suppression, big money lobbying, and other significant hurdles. Thanks for asking me this. Now, this is something I've been given a lot of thought to because I've also felt similarly like, am I doing enough? Is this, is talking to you guys a thing? Is that even activism? What else could I do? What should people do? What could I advise people to do? And, um, and I think it really comes down to this, okay? The, the, the federal government is beyond any of us. It's this huge bureaucracy that employs millions of Americans. It is ridiculously obtusely huge and, and misstructured and, or, you know, it's just this, it's a bureaucracy. And it's a bureaucracy for the, you know, for this huge world international, you know, encompassing superpower, <laughs> you know? There's a lot going on. Uh, no one of us can or should ever feel that we're in a position where it's us against that because we'll lose every time. We'll get crushed like a little ant under, you know, Shaq's shoe. So that doesn't work. What does work is when we are speaking in unison, when we are together, uh, many voices, right? Uh, e pluribus unum, <laughs> from many one. That's what, you know, kind of built this country. And that principle is that together we are stronger than divided. And so when it comes to advice I can give to anybody out there who wants to get more involved in changing things, there's two things that I have to say on that. One, um, if you're really serious about implementing change at any level on any, for any reason, it's commitment. It's not a part-time activity. It's not something you, you know, that you do uh, sort of. Uh, it's if you really want to enact change, you're going to have to, you know, really put your nose to the grindstone about it because your energy is, is the thing that's going to, but, you know, meet up against the energy of other people who don't want what you want and are actively pursuing an agenda that is not your agenda. So you're going to have to invest the same or more energy, and that's where multiple, you know, people come into play. And this is where, you know, maybe your knack for the, all of this is um, uh, get riling up other people. Uh, talking to other people, convincing, selling other people, whatever, getting other people on board. Or maybe your thing is you're in the back room and that's and you work on stuffing envelopes or something. Obviously, I'm sitting here talking about volunteering, about stepping up, about doing something with um, a group that probably already exists, finding your group, and just joining up and getting involved somehow. And it doesn't mean, you know, when I say full time, I don't mean like you have to sacrifice everything and your whole life goes into it. But I mean, you've got to be committed. It can't be 10 minutes a week. That's not going to get anything done. So, um, so, so stepping up, joining a group of some kind is, is probably the most effective thing you as an individual could do. Now, what group do you join? Well, this is where you have to pick your battle because the other thing about taking on the government is you're talking about trying to change a multiplicity of topics that, that involve hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of people, if you're going to talk about something like education or some general sort of thing like science, you know, you're talking about something that millions of people are involved in. Your tiny little voice is really just a drop in the ocean. So again, 
you want to get your voice on board with the cause that you're most passionate about, that you care the most about. You got to pick your battles because you can't disperse across lots and lots and lots of things and expect to be effective at any of them. Um, this was something I uh, put a lot of thought into as far as like picking my battles, right? Originally it was just Scientology. Now it's more, it's broadened into, um, you know, destructive cults in general, manipulation, propaganda. I think that's my real enemy as far as I'm concerned is harmful or abusive or unknowing manipulation of, of people. I really have a thing on that. So that's kind of my niche, right? It's still pretty niche. Uh, in the big wide world, there's only so much attention focused on that topic, but that's for me, that's my hot topic. I'm all about that. And, um, and the other things I get involved in or that I get, you know, keen or interested in are either avenues off of that or whole different subjects. And when I forayed into those, people weren't so interested in what I had to say about them. You know, I got into movie reviews for a while. Love movies, love movie, love doing movie reviews, but nobody really cared, <laughs> you know, not really. So I stopped because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that people were particularly interested in me talking or, you know, being or, or hearing from me about. So that's not my thing. That's no longer my thing that I'm going after or my topic, right? Um, you know, you can do more than one thing at once, but you have to, it depends, you have to temper it all with, you know, how effective are you going to be at what you're doing. So anyway, I think I'm making my point. I'm probably over making it, but I think, uh, I think those are the two key things to think about. And you, once you have answers to those questions, what are you passionate about specifically? What specific topic are you going to go all in on and be okay with that? Because that's, you know, how you're going to get effective. And then what group should I be part of? Or if I have to create it from scratch, fine. But really look out there because there's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff out there that I... When certainly, I've certainly been surprised many, many times to find out that there are activists living three doors down from me who are all about some topic that I'm, you know, marginally interested in. I'm like, wow, that's cool. You're, you're all about that. And I didn't even know such a thing existed. Um, so anyway, that's uh, my answer to that question. Thanks for asking. Okay, guys, so this was our show for this week. I hope it was interesting, distracting, entertaining, enlightening in some fashion. Um, and I want to thank you guys for following along with me and, and watching. There's, um, we are going to be setting up probably in the next week or two is what I'm, what I'm hoping the timing is going to be on getting this call-in show going. I'll definitely let everybody know when it's happening. And hopefully, hopefully do it with enough advance notice that I don't end up doing a call-in show and nobody calls. <laughs> oh, that would suck. Okay, guys. So uh, we'll make that happen and I'll let you guys know what's, what's going on with that. Please send me any questions you have to askchrisshelton at gmail.com and leave any comments or feedback, good, bad, or sideways in the comment section below here at YouTube. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.